Between the Covers is brought to you in part through the support of Propeller, a magazine of books, music, art, film, and life, and its publishing imprint, Propeller Books. Visit them on the web at propellermag.com and propellerbooks.com or on Twitter at PropellerMag. Coming up next is my conversation with the writer Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi about her book, Call Me Zebra. But before we begin, I just wanted to alert you to some changes with regards to becoming a supporter on Patreon. So if you're interested in becoming a supporter on Patreon, you can go to patreon.com slash between the covers. And there you can discover that you can get one of uh, Jesse Ball's fantastic co-written out of print illustrated books, Vera and Linus, a book which Publishers Weekly says the light touch and often archaic feel of the prose owes as much to Kafka as to classic fairy tales. Certainly many readers will find this book unsettling, but most will also find it hard not to remember a time when the world was filled with this kind of fearful mystery and wonder. This is the last box of a book that's out of print and a press that's out of print. So if you're interested, this is one thing that's being offered for people who become supporters of the show. But I also have a couple extra copies of the book that I did with Ursula, Ursula K. Le Guin, Conversations on Writing from Tin House. And uh, some extra copies of Sheila Hetty's Motherhood and Molly Crabapple's Brothers of the Gun. So if you want to check this out, you can go to patreon.com slash between the covers. Now enjoy today's program. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain, and it's put on spin. Good morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer Azarin Vanderfleet Alumi. Alumi has degrees in creative writing and Latin American studies from the University of California, San Diego, and is a graduate of the MFA program in creative writing from Brown University. She's the author of the critically acclaimed novel Fra Keeler from Dorothy Publishing Project, a book lauded by everyone from Robert Coover to Lynn Tillman to Brian Evanson. She's also a National Book Foundation 5 Under 35 honoree, the recipient of a McDowell Fellowship, a Fulbright Fellowship in Fiction to Catalonia, Spain, a fellowship from the Instituto de las Letras Catalanes in Barcelona, and a 2015 Whiting Award. Her work has appeared in the Paris Review, Guernica, The Believer, Granta, Words Without Borders, and elsewhere. She has lived in Iran, Spain, Italy, and the United Arab Emirates, and currently splits her time between Florence, Italy, and South Bend, Indiana, where she teaches in the MFA program at the University of Notre Dame, 
with specialties in fiction writing, Latin American and Iberian literature, and literature and translation. Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi is here today on Between the Covers to talk about her much-anticipated new novel out from Houghton Mifflin Harcourt entitled Call Me Zebra, a book that Kirkus in its starred review calls a bombastic homage to the metacriticism of Borges, the romantic absurdity of Cervantes, and the punk rock autofictions of Kathy Acker. This is a brilliant, demented, and bizarro book that demands and rewards all the attention a reader might dare to give it. The Los Angeles Review of Books says, Vanderfleet Alumi captures the shattered identity of the refugee and the immigrant, the way that literature becomes a lifeline in exile, a movable home, a network of dissent, a genealogy beyond national borders. And the Wall Street Journal says, Hearken ye fellow misfits, migrants, outcasts, squint-eyed bibliophiles, library haunters, and bookstall stalkers. Here is a novel for you. Welcome to Between the Covers, Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be here. So I'd love to start our conversation with a little bit of world building together. Um, for those who haven't yet read Call Me Zebra, both the circumstances of Zebra's life and this enchanting labyrinthine philosophy that sort of emerges from um, the circumstance that she inherits. So let's start with the circumstance of, of Bibi Abbas Abbas Husseini, who eventually becomes called Zebra. Tell us about her family and family lineage she has been born into. Yeah, so uh, Bibi has... Um... She was born in, in Iran, and um, dur you know during the Iran-Iraq War, she and her father and mother escape to the north um, near the Caspian, where the family has this uh, really sort of eccentric home that they refer to as the Oasis of, book, of Books or the Censorship Recovery Center. And it's a space that the family, um, who's you know come from a long lineage of autodidacts, anarchists, and atheists, have been retreating to during times of censorship or political oppression. And from there, uh, they set off on foot to Turkey, and uh, then eventually to Barcelona and New York City. And we then encounter uh, Zebra. Um, she renames herself Zebra when her father passes away, and um, that's when we pick up the story. And she's decided to retrace the path of their exile after his his death. And one of the things that's interesting about the patrilineal lineage for zebra is even before they're in exile there's a sense of there being a borderlessness to their appetites in terms of literature that's right um her father is a big fan of nietzsche uh and at the same time really does believe that literature is the only nation without boundaries with no checkpoints no caste system and so they they read everything and he reads to her from from the moment she's born so he'll read uh, medieval Japanese literature to her and then he'll read Dante and um, all the big philosophers and um, he sort of uh, builds this constellation of sentences in her mind and uh, she then refers to literature is a kind of uh, super highway of sentences that are interconnected. So it's a very transnational project at all times, and that's the way that she comes to see it. Well, in the first chapter, Zebra, she, she presents 
the worldview of her father and her father's fathers mm-hmm. um, that's been passed down to her. The, this world, as you described, of, of the mind and of books and the history of thought. And when she is in New York in the very beginning of not too far into the novel, um, she loses her, her dad. And she, thus she's the only person left living in this constructed universe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, she, as you mentioned, she, she tries to uh, retrace and reverse the history of exile of the family and calls it the grand tour of exile and is moving from the new world to the old world. Uh, and her father had said to her that memorization is our only recourse against loss. It sort of feels like this geographical retracing of their flight becomes an unexpected way to memorize. So I, was, mm-hmm. I wanted, if, if you could talk a little bit about, obviously in the most literal sense, he's talking about memorizing texts, but yeah. in a way it also feels like Zebra is, is um, doing this reverse exile as a form of memorization. Absolutely. I think that's what Zebra discovers when she goes on this journey. Her intention is to go back and read uh, all of the books in situ, right? So the books that her father would have read while they were in Barcelona, she wants to reread them in Barcelona as a way of trying to understand what could have been going through his mind. Uh, I neglected to mention that her mother dies uh, while they're traveling on foot from Iran to Turkey, and um, part of Zebra's buried grief has to do with that unacknowledged loss or that um, sort of trauma early on. And the father's death then sort of solidifies the sense of loss that she has, and she begins to go on these walks that she calls these literary pilgrimages uh, of fragmentation or um, burying excavated cell or excavating buried selves. And in the process, she realizes that so many of our uh, memories are actually embedded in space and that history leaves a trace in our bodies, in our architecture, in, in our art, uh, and that literature, uh, she sort of starts to inhabit that space where um, there's a deep intersection between literature and landscape or literature and architecture. And she realizes that she's always living in um, a representation of the world in art rather than within the world itself. But she even questions uh, whether or not one can live in the world unmediated, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's sort of, that's Um, the big philosophy of the matrix of literature starts really on these long walks that she goes on while she's reading. Well, there, there are two maxims that zebra inherits that I'd like to discuss sort of next to each other. Mm -hmm. One that there's no such thing as reading only rereading. Right. And the other that memorization is a way to resist colonization. So if we think of zebras retracing of her family's flight as a form of memorization as a recourse against loss and also maybe a rereading of her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to the ways memorization of text or of place is an anti-colonial act. Yeah. I mean, in, in her case in particular, so much about who she is, her body and her, her sort of story has been narrativized for her, right? Um, Whether that be in the immigrant experience that she has in the United States or in Spain, um, but then also the ways in which 
uh, people's narratives or stories or identities are um, repressed even within their own homelands, right? So early on in Iran, the father is this sort of very uh, committed intellectual and understands that the Iranian revolution is going to be hijacked and um, refuses to kind of participate in in the uprisings just because of his untrusting nature, uh, but also because of his deep commitment to to having memorized all of these texts through time, he understands that history is going to come back to settle its old scores at mm-hmm. any moment. And I think that um, f- for Zebra, the memorization of the texts is a reminder that you're never safe, that history is always going to pick a new new victim, and also uh, a way of of um, being able to recreate that history so that people's stories aren't forgotten. So it's sort of a, a, a project of oral history, but through memorization, and it's also a relationship that I think a lot of people in exile have to, to memory in general, right? You preserve the memory by retelling it over and over and over again, and there's a great risk in forgetting the story. Mm. Um, there is a further risk of erasure in that forgetting that she's very aware of. Mm. Yeah. You've said before that you were thinking a lot about the relationship between literature and landscape yeah. and of what it would be to abandon the so-called new world and and return to live in the old in order to sink into what you call the architecture of deep time. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, in a way, your current life going between Italy and Indiana is a, a various iterations and reiterations of this question I'm imagining, but... Can you talk to us about this twinning of the old world with deep time and what that means? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, for me, I mean, it, it means something different to me than it does to to the narrator of Call Me Zebra. Um, I, I think that what I knew but then realized fully in writing this book is the dissociation that we feel or see in the new world, this kind of... Um, and we see this especially now with the rise of racist politics, right? This feeling that uh, the, the the new world is isolated and not connected to anything that came before or that people who arrived here long ago um, should have suspended their memories of that journey in order to fully cl- lay claim to this land, right? And and um, there are narratives of ownership that I think are deeply problematic and connected to a kind of suppression of, mm. of those memories of um, being outcasts or migrants um, and, and landing here and then essentially occupying, right, the land. Uh, so... That dissociative nature, I think, we see return in these very deep, violent ways in our culture. I mean, we're seeing it now, and it's always been been present. But I think it's a kind of deep, unacknowledged grief. Um, and the landscape, I suppose, in the South, it's somewhat different. But I have I've never lived in the South. I, I've lived on the coasts, and the sort of, especially on the West Coast, the newness of the landscape and the architecture supports uh, a kind of 
mental condition of forgetting, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because nothing in the environment is necessarily cueing us or triggering us to constantly have to um, participate in a culture of memory. In in the old world, right, you're surrounded by architecture and history, and you can see all the stratified layers. So, for example, in Italy... um, you can sort of see exactly where the World War II bombings occurred and um, there will be historic buildings flush against uh, sort of restored buildings from the aftermath of the Second World War. And that kind of texture or overlapping is a, is a palimpsest, right, that really fascinates me and um, I think is a, is a sort of natural cultural memory that people participate in. Mm. Yeah. Before we talk more about literature and its intersection with the landscape, I just wanted to touch briefly on something that I came across about your own life growing up mm-hmm. uh, that maybe is the flip side of, of or the dark side of memorization. And I th- think of, for Zebra, this movable home, this way mm-hmm. to, this anti-colonial act that sort of preserves identity as she moves from place to place is this act of memorization. But when you were a sixth grader and, and mm-hmm. the Ayatollah, came back from his own exile, there was a, a different sort of uh, memorization that you had to do. Can you, can you talk a little bit yeah, about that? that uh, yeah, I can. Um, I, I, I was a sixth grader, when, you're right, um, when, when this incident occurred, but the Ayatollah had already come back quite some time ago. So I was, uh, you know, there in the early 90s. And um, in class, we were asked to copy the the story of Ayatollah's arrival to Iran from from France and this heroic journey and salvation narrative uh, about five times we had to copy this story into our notebooks and uh, we had never been asked to do something like that before um, copying actually uh, and dictation was something that we had to do regularly as a way of making sure we were learning to spell correctly etc um, and I think it's a vintage technology that people don't use in the classroom anymore. But um, when that happened, when we were asked to to sort of copy his story and his journey, I just protested in class and uh, said that I, I thought it was a form of brainwashing and that I didn't want to participate. And of course, I was uh, suspended for, mm. you know, um, I can't remember how long it was for. But uh, when I went home, my mom didn't even blink an eye. She was like, good job. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, I sort of, re- you know, had a kind of rebellious nature, I suppose, from when yeah. I was very young. Yeah. But it also points to something about Zebra's family. You say they're autodidacts and atheists. And there's one more A. Yeah, anarchists. And anarchists. Um, that even if they hadn't been forced into exile, there's a way in which they're sort of in exile, even Absolutely. when they're connected to their own land and culture. Absolutely. And I think Zebra's journey is in part understanding the faults in that, right? That um, her her father, it's a cruel kind of love. I mean, they're so close, but she's just so isolated from others. And I think it's the relationship with, with the philologist, right, Ludo Bembo, that eventually um, forces her to look at that. Um, mm. And it's it's a kind of painful reflection, but it, it's the only way that she does actually change somewhat um, through the course of the novel. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to the writer Azarine van der Fleet Alumi about her latest book, Call Me Zebra. 
So the writer Enrique Villamatas, he coined the phrase literature sickness, Mm -hmm. uh, something that in your book, Zebra Suffers Great Bouts of. And you wrote this really interesting piece about it for The Believer. And you're looking primarily at Henry James' Portrait of a Lady and Lynn Tillman's Motion Sickness. And in it, you describe literature sickness as a feverish obsession with reading and with viewing the world through the lens of literature. And we definitely see this Mm -hmm. with our protagonist, the way that literature is informing her choices in the book and how she's trying to live out her family's commandments of literature is your sword and seek refuge in literature Uh, with writers like Walter Benjamin or Dante, which feel Mm -hmm. as flesh and blood and as vital to mm-hmm. her in the book to me as her own family like mm-hmm. even maybe more present in some regards than yeah. her own than her own family and she even consults books in an oracular fashion opening up books to get uh wisdom um you have this great quote from that believer essay um that i'd love for you to elaborate on but in relationship to zebra so you say While the compulsion to read threatens to erode the reader's sense of reality, it also uncovers some hidden truth about the nature of the self in light of the very reality it is required to operate. In other words, it erodes one in order to unveil the other. Mm -hmm. Can can you speak to that a little? Yeah. um, So for, for me, the great book of literature sickness, and I think probably for Enrique Villamatas as well, is Don Quixote where you have this very picaresque, kind of funny, hysterical um, narrator who who so deeply is invested in literature that he believes he can reinvent himself as a literary figure and go on these kinds of um, journeys through Spain. And, and because his, it's really an exploration of the difference between like per- perception or real- and reality, right? The mind encountering the world and... Um, oftentimes there's an incongruity there that can be really tragic or really funny or both. And I just uh, love that character of Don Quixote and the ways in which he makes me laugh out loud um, when I'm reading reading his, his sort of his monologues um, and the way that he can convince himself that something he's seeing is, is, is something a representation of something he's read in one of the chivalric tales that he's obsessed with. And I think that um, the Believer essay is sort of about exploring the ways in which uh, realism itself is a, a kind of construct, right? It, it's It's not a one-to-one representation of reality. It's a kind of hyperbolic representation of space and psychology and the body and in a book that's both exercising realism and at the same time about obsession with reading the way that we see in Tillman's work or Henry James's work um, what we're getting is a kind of mapping of consciousness through time onto the page and so you're both getting the signposts of realism and being mesmerized or hypnotized into thinking that you're experiencing this perfectly constructed story world that's a that's sort of mimicking our world. But there are so many layers of depth to it that um, the deeper you descend, it begins to erode at that idea that this is a stable representation, mm-hmm. right? Um, that it's static. And, and I think that's something both Tillman and Henry James do so beautifully is just... 
you, it's a descent reading their work through literature, but also um, you eventually go through the the sort of realism, right? The the curtain of realism. You go through it, and then you're looking at the backstage, right? At how it was constructed, and that in of itself makes you question what you're what you're reading or mm. think more deeply about this idea that realism is somehow representation or truth, um, or that there's there's a one to one relationship, like I was saying. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's very it's it's sort of yeah a lot of complex ideas, but um, I think really simple at it at its core is that we can't really perceive a kind of solid static realism with a capital R. I mean that's not how our minds work. Well, I wonder if you're also going at can we even achieve a solid static selfhood with mm-hmm. a capital S? Because you talk about how Tillman's book you say that Tillman's book reveals the unreality of self. And at another point, you say, at their core, books that explore what it means to inhabit life through literature are also examining the intersubjective nature of consciousness, probing the gap between perception and reality. And I wondered if these two things are are inextricably linked, the mm-hmm. unreality of self and in the intersubjective nature of consciousness. Mm-hmm. Like when I think about this going into depth, right. then I think about deep time and the palimpsest when you're looking at Italy, maybe that's also the same in our mind. Like the more you Mm -hmm. go through the layers, the more you see other people in your own mind, like Zebra's seeing in herself. Yeah. And I think that the, the sort of, well, it goes to the heart of individualism and what is individualism, right? Um, if the self isn't static, which I don't think it is, right. It's kind of this like kaleidoscopic moving dynamic force and it's deeply interconnected to other people, to space, um, to history, everything that's been, everything that we've inherited, right, even through our genetic coding. Um, there's no such thing as, as a kind of self that exists separate from others or separate from the environment. And that is so such a comforting notion for me that... Um, I don't know, it's almost sort of has some some sort of Buddhist resonances, right? That mm-hmm. um, where there is just one fabric. And if you move something on one end, um, something else is, everything else is going to shift to adjust to it or to react to it in some ways. And and to come back to, to Zebra, what she's trying to do is to access this space. But of course, it's so difficult to access. And often we only access that kind of deep piece uh, just momentarily and then we're back in the kind of chaos and and the sort of veneer of of reality but she does she is trying to account for life as as a kind of totality that includes both the possibility of our death our actual death and our lives and the ways in which there are parts of us that die um, when we lose people or we're displaced. And she talks about Blanchot a lot um, mm-hmm. and his idea that uh, the, the totality is, is unreal, right? So um, if you look at the self or you look at totality, there is a kind of unreality to it because you can't measure it. You can't contain it. It's so much vaster and bigger and more movable than we're often comfortable with. This This might be a little bit of a tangent, but... I, I thought about Zebra's selfhood and the moving from the so-called new world to the so-called old world, which some people might think of as facing backwards. Mm. Um, it reminded me of something that Forrest Gander 
has said in a description of the language and gestures of, of the Bolivian people, the Aymara. Mm. Um, they're the only known people where spatially the future is behind them. Um, so because you can't see it, you can't That's see the so future. And yeah. so um, the past is in front of them. And when they gesture about something that's happened in the past, when they're accessing memory, they gesture forward. And, and when I think of zebra and the Aymara, it makes me think that it isn't a coincidence that the other books of literature's sickness that you examined also involve people moving from the new world to the yeah. old world. Yeah. Um, so we have this, um, I wondered, I guess I wondered about looking back or as I Mara would say, uh, looking forward into the mm -hmm. past. Yeah. I love that. It's so interesting. I mean, Zebra talks about the future as being history, right? Or that history is the future. And she talks about, um, I mean, she's really interested in precognition and has these kinds of, uh, like you said, she she consults these texts, these older medieval or even before then, um, these texts as oracles of wisdom to see what what's coming, right? And um, news of the, of the future for her is embedded in the past and for her father as well. And I, I think that it's really interesting to think about Henry James or Lynn Tillman in relation to, to passports. Um, James in, in particular, who sort of acquired his British citizenship um, not long before he passed away. But then I also think about the reverse Nabokov and his relationship to his documents of immigration and his passports. And this kind of, on the one hand for Nabokov, accumulation of um, new selves that he has to perform, right? Mm -hmm. Because they exist, they've been, these, this self has been documented in a new passport and now he has to invent that self in order to perform it. Versus in Henry James, he's almost like shedding um, the passports and, and arriving at this, this sort of what to him feels like some authentic self, which of course I, I question that word, but right. um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of thing to think about. Well, I mean, the first you mentioned Don Quixote is the quintessential book of literature sickness. And it was the first book I thought of with this with Zebra and mm -hmm. uh, partially because she's moving. She's creating reality as she moves through the world through the reality she's constructing in her right. mind and in relationship to other books. Um, but and I want to talk more about Don Quixote. But I, I, I was wondering if maybe you could also point us to any other uh, examples that mm -hmm. you particularly like in the the lit sick uh, genre. Yeah, well, you know, I think of Dante's The Divine Comedy as being completely about literature sickness, whether it's his relationship to theological texts or to Virgil. Right? I mean, Virgil guides him through through hell and, and um, I think purgatory as well. And, and that's a book to me that's deeply about uh, literature sickness. Uh, let me think off the top of my head. The, Enrique Villamata is the one that I love the most. It's called Montano's Malady. And it's, mm. it's a great translation um, out with new directions. And then there is uh, Valeria Luizelli's The Story of My Teeth, mm -hmm. which also references a lot of um, Petrarch and other kinds of books. And, and Petrarch himself is another good uh, example of, of someone who's engaged with these other texts. And then there's a tradition of doing that in Japanese literature with Basho. Um, and it's his book, The Narrow Road to the Deep North, which um, includes... 
these walking pilgrimages to sites that other poets had traveled to, and he records their poems and meditates on them and mm-hmm. then composes his own poems in response. So there, there's a lot of... Um, so Zebra would have liked that book. Yeah, yeah. I've read that book quite a number of times, and, and I, I just... It's very slow and meditative, but I absolutely love it, yeah. Mm. So, so if we were to move on to Don Quixote in mm-hmm. relationship to this book, the, the place where I feel like there's the deepest resonances in, in, in the way you portray the romantic relationship between Zebra <laughs> and the philologist, the Italian philologist, uh, Ludo Bembo, her on-again, off-again love affair with him. So that's sort of the source of both the book's tension mm-hmm. and also a lot of its humor. Yeah. And it's also the place where we most experience the limitations of Zebra's own self-narrative. It's the place where we can see around the way she presents the world to us. So mm-hmm. we start to see like, oh, this world seems like it's hermetic and and perfected and yet there's some it it's also um producing some difficulties for her, particularly in, in the in the romantic world. Um, but it made me think of the similar relationship between Don Quixote and, and Sancho Panza. Yeah. With Quixote, he has the, the fever, sort of the feverish imaginative life. He's even tall and, and skinny and not really, he's more otherworldly in a, in a mm-hmm. bodily sense. And, and, and Panza is motivated by the appetites of the world. And, um, here we have Zebra as almost a disembodied character. She hardly eats. Um, she's ruminating all the time. She, she's tormented by her exile, her absence of home, and like her ancestors, finds her home in the world of, of words. But in an ironic way, even though she finds a home in the world of words, she's exiled from her body. Mm-hmm. Um, so in a way, she's kind of living off of the words mm-hmm. as, as her food. Um, I was ready to devour the next sentence to eat Benjamin quoting Hegel to consume an infinitely receding sequence of quotes, which mm-hmm. again gives us that layering that yeah. you wouldn't see in, in Los Angeles, but you'd see in Italy. Um, but Ludo's the polar opposite, uh, exasperatingly so to yeah. Zebra. He's practical. He, he's equally interested in language, but it's a more practical sort of engagement with the text. Um, <laughs> and I think in the Los Angeles Review of Books, it's described as performing autopsies on textual cadavers while Zebra is the mad writer who Frankensteins them into a living monster. (laughs) That's pretty awesome. And he's really into food and sex, the pleasures of life. He's an embodied character. You've created these, this inextricable, inextricable pair like in Don Quixote. So I was just hoping you'd talk more about Ludo and the role, which feels like a vital role. I can't imagine the book without him. Yeah, neither can I. Actually, I you know I I started working on this book in 2010, and I was doing the background research and just kind of reading all these writers of exile. But when I started writing, uh, two or three years after that, the first thing that appeared on the page was was Ludo Bembo, hmm. and it was the breakup scene that we get towards the end of the book, um, that first kind of rupture in the relationship where he's just had enough of her and uh, he's trying to reflect sort of the ways in which she's perpetuating um, 
exile or rejection or alienation, right? Um, without intending to, of course, but he reflects this back to her. And there, it's also where all the humor, like you said, in the book comes from. I mean, I think um, this book is deeply tragic, but it's also very comical. And, and that's due to the fact that the two of them are kind of pushing and pulling each other across the Mediterranean. And um, they're both very intelligent people. Uh, but of course, like you said, he's so much more pragmatic. He's really interested in the history of the definition of wards um, and in dictionaries. And <laughs> <laughs> he he has this great sort of recitation of, of all the w different definitions of exile that he kind of uh, lashes at her, um, against her with, um, while she's listening to all the other pilgrims of exile or the void um, come up with what exile feels like for them. Like, what are their personal definitions of exile? Mm. And he's really uh, interested in, like, the, the, the sort of the book, right? What does the d dictionary say exile means? And he's very concrete and frustrating in that way to her. And mm -hmm. she's, of course, maddening to him. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love it. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not in it, but I, 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 <laughs> yeah, I love to read nice about to it. It's nice to witness. Yeah. So there are a lot of ironies. There's a lot of absurdist humor, but there's also a lot of ironies. For instance, as the last of an ancestral lineage, Zebra reminds the reader that she carries this great weight of responsibility. Mm -hmm. But this doesn't just manifest as the need to preserve the wisdom of her family of autodidacts and atheists and anarchists. But from the humor perspective, she's also literally carrying thing, mm -hmm. things around, objects she's inherited, stained yeah. rugs, a rolled up portrait of a duck, a samovar, even her dead father in a suitcase at one point. And one tragic irony of this is that this is all in response to being exiled and feeling othered no matter where she goes. So it's this act of sort of desperate preservation. But though, even though it's an act of love toward her parents, it sort of becomes a fortress. Mm -hmm. um, she's not capable of engaging with the other, mm -hmm. uh, of creating space in her heart for the real embodied otherness of this man in her life, um, for loving a living person, mm -hmm. uh, even though she's defining herself through otherness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's sort of uh, the danger of all of her thinking um, of our sort of hyper-intellectualism and this cerebral way in which she goes through the world. And I think that it's the relationship with Ludo that eventually allows us as readers to see that the boundary be between the victim and the victimizer is blurry. And that violence, when this kind of deep historical violence has so many subconscious ways of re reproducing itself and that in fact the more she holds on to her grief the more she's perpetuating this form of psychological or emotional exile including toward herself right mm -hmm. she doesn't live from the heart um, in any way and a lot of what what her journey is about is actually to question whether or not she's ever been loved, if she knows what that is, and to think, you know, what is love, and how do we love ourselves, how do we nurture each other? And um, she eventually does realize that the, her biggest revenge as an exiled body is, in fact, to lay claim to, to love, right, mm -hmm. and to make space for that. Um, 
and I think that's where sort of we we part with her, right? Is is because there are no easy resolutions in a situation like this, and I definitely didn't want this, you know, big redemptive arc, uh, because I don't think that's the way we resolve our trauma, right? It's not yeah. in one instance, or it's not in one epiphany. It's a constant returning to, and trying to, uh, sort of crack away at the bricks in those walls little by little over a lifetime in order to sort of get on the other side. Yeah. One of the, one of the things she feels with regards to Ludo is a difference in the way they are oriented towards exile. So there's various terms that are in her worldview that she's inherited. And one of them, one of them is the pyramid of exile. Mm -hmm. And I was wondering if you could just Tell us a little bit about the Pyramid of Exile in relationship to the way she looks at her potential romantic partner mm-hmm. and maybe ways in which she doesn't feel like she can cross over and feel seen by him because of this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the Pyramid of Exile is one of those theories she constructs that she's leaving the new world, and it's um, deeply serious but also very funny in the way that she's sort of goes on this long monologue about um, the pyramid of exile and who's on the bottom of the pyramid, who's in the middle, who's on top. And she sort of starts to think about uh, there are lots of people who who are below her, who are suffering even more and who are um, refugees without documentation, who... Um, you know, die in the process of getting across the Mediterranean. And she refers to the Mediterranean as the Sea of Sunken Hopes. And then there are people like herself who are sort of in the middle of the pyramid uh, and and um, who are displaced or in, in exile, but, um, you know, chose to flee, were able to eventually, whether, you know, by hook or by crook, somehow acquire documentation and therefore can uh, come and go. And then she thinks about people like Ludo Bembo, who are at the top, and they get the most amount of oxygen, because they're standing on everyone else's shoulders, who are expats, right? So Ludo is an Italian philologist who's um, displaced in Spain as a result of sort of like the environment Berlusconi has created in Italy. And she believes that they're the the most well-off, right, within this pyramid. And she doesn't think that he can ever really understand, Mm -hmm. just like she can never fully understand the pain of the people who she feels she's standing on their shoulders, right? And I think it, for me, and I think eventually for Zebra, this is another way in which we're all interconnected, right? Herself, the definitions of who she is, are not separate from her awareness of this kind of huge machinery of power, right, that we're all implicated in. And so through that, we're deeply connected, whether it's Mm. through the ways in which um, we acquire wealth or freedom or oxygen or um, diminish someone else's that, Mm. you know, again, that's the fabric, right, that we're living in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, even though this book feels clearly like a fiction, there are ways it also sort of feels like an imaginative rereading of your own family story of exile, or like that this is a fictional palimpsest atop an autobiographical inquiry. Mm-hmm. Um, like Zebra, your family left Iran as exiles. You lived in innumerable places while growing up. Spain was a particularly 
particularly notable place of transition mm-hmm. um, for you and is also the main lo- locale of the novel. And the main love interest in the book is with an Italian. Your your husband is Italian. Uh, and I'm by no means suggesting that I think Zebra is you. Um, but I'd love to mine the gap a little between the fiction you've created and, mm-hmm. and your own life, um, particularly the literary pilgrimages that Zebra does when she's in Spain. Uh, pilgrimages centered around writers who have experienced some form of exile themselves and your own literary pilgrimages that you did while living in Spain. Um, and that involved you using books instead of maps or books as maps mm-hmm. to find out where to go. Um, so can you speak about the pilgrimages on their own, but also maybe how they're informing the ones in the book? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you're right to say that this is a kind of fictional autobiography or it's playing with that genre. I was consciously toying with the idea of dramatizing aspects of my own life and um, seeing how in the Borgesian sense that would shift my relationship to myself as a writer and also complicate it in a way. And how these inventions of these selves through zebra would then mirror something back to me that I that I couldn't know unless I had written this book. And it's it's a, also certainly an intellectual uh, autobiography for me. Mm. M- my family they actually weren't big readers, so that's completely fictional. Mm. Um, they're just definitely not anarchists, <laughs> <laughs> atheists, or. Um, or autodidacts, although although my father is somewhat of an autodidact and um, a very kind of I would say reclusive character, and um, he's he's Dutch and a sea captain and spent a lot of his time at sea. And I grew up mainly with with my mother and um, that side of the family. So in some senses, all of the deep grief and the the emotions that Zebra on, I guess explores in the novel are also feelings that I've had to navigate um, of displacement of, of figuring out how to how to kind of deal with that line of being the outsider and resisting maybe or complicating for people the stories that they invent for you right um, when they don't know what box to fit you in so there's there's that, um, and I do feel strongly about acknowledging that, right? Um, and at the same time, this is this book sort of is so strange, and it, it, the only way that it could be honest is if it became radically strange and other to me. And so when I read it, my experience is quite uncanny. I don't recognize mm-hmm. um, myself in it, but I do remember, of course, the writing process being very difficult. Um, I laughed a lot, but I also, you know, wept a lot um, writing it. So I, I think I'm forgetting the second part of your question. The second was... part's about the walking. Oh, right. So right. Yeah. the walking you did in, in Catalonia um, without maps. Yeah. And what was what was impelling that that yeah. journey and how that intersects with the, the pilgrimages in the book. Yeah. So I got the Fulbright to go and do background research for this novel. And as it turns out, I wasn't actually emotionally mature enough to know what I was doing, right? Mm. I mean, I had to kind of 
our writing self, I, I truly believe, is ahead of our worldly world self. And there was a lot of catching up I had to do. So I had this kind of project in mind that I was going to go and research Josep Pla's work and his relationship to the Catalan landscape and then read other writers of exile and think about the ways in which history or trauma are embedded in the landscape. But for so long, I didn't understand why I needed to do this. And once I was there, the only thing I could do in order to kind of break into that or gain understanding was to start going on these walks, these pilgrimages with his books and then with Rodoreda's books. And then I went to Port Beau where Walter Benjamin um, committed suicide on the border with France. And uh, I didn't have maps. We didn't use technology. And my, my um, he was my future husband at that point. <laughs> Leonardo um, did these walks with me. And we were also kind of thinking about um, what, is, what do journeys mean and how can um, we sort of travel locally with the same electric energy you would set off on a long kind of journey to a faraway place with. And, and part of accomplishing that was actually making the space unfamiliar to ourselves and reading the books and trying to trace look at spaces that were described in the books and then go to those locations and see if those spaces still look the same or still existed. And in a lot of cases, they didn't. Or in a lot of cases, we would have to kind of walk across the old railroad tracks to the old road that they would travel on with the, with donkeys. And we got lost a lot. And um, we also had so much fun. And, and we wrote for Words Without Borders. So a lot of those early pilgrimages that then, when I finally had the maturity to write the book got recast in a much more fictionalized, dramatic way in the book um, we wrote early on. Yeah. Can you talk about your attraction to Catalonian literature or Catalan writers? Uh, yeah. Why is Joseph Pla play such a significant role in the book and in these pilgrimages, for instance? Yeah, um, I, you know... I, when we lived in Spain, we were in Valencia, and they speak Valencia, which is very, you know, it's Catalan. It just has a slightly different inflection to it. And so I grew up with, with Catalan in my ear, and it's just, I don't know what it is about it, but it just kind of, the frequency of the language, the tone, um, especially the, the way that the vowels are pronounced, just kind of grabs my heart. And... Um, of course, it's one of those things you just don't know why why that is, right? Like sometimes you listen to a piece of music and everything in you changes for just that one moment. So for me, reading Catalan literature is is has that. Um, so is it? Yeah. Do these writers um, are they engaged with the theme of exile, or is it more the sound of the language almost being the attraction of a home? Well, it depends on the writer. So Mercer Rodoreda, the book of hers that I absolutely love, was written in exile about the Spanish Civil War and the time of the doves. And she wrote that when she was in France. And it's, it's, a, it's an absolutely stunning work. Very simple, deceptively simple sentences that kind of accumulate into this emotional, complex um, space. Or, or, you know, it's narrative through accumulation. And José Pla has that same kind of very direct, almost s sort of s severe delivery of sentences. And 
it's it's in the way that they accumulate um, paragraph after paragraph that you really start to get a feeling for how passionate he was as a writer. Because if you just read a few pages, it's hard to really um, capture that. But he spent his whole life uh, having to deal with these very deeply conflicting sides of his personality. He was deeply Catholic. Um, he was also a fervent Catalanist. And of course, during the Civil War, those two identities couldn't coexist right. because you had the um, Franco, who was kind of conservative and Catholic, and um, the oppression of the Catalans that happened during Franco and his long dictatorship. And so, you know, Plow was kind of left neither here nor there. So I think I'm more interested in his identity and in the way that somehow through the course of history, his identity always trapped him and cornered him. No matter what was going on, he always seemed to land on the long, wrong side of the line. Mm. Um, and he just wrote, I think, um, maniacally as a coping mechanism, but also to leave a record of um, the territory, the food, and and, and yeah, what the book weather. should should we start with? Well, he's only begun to get translated into English recently. So the book of his that I absolutely love, The Grey Notebook, is actually published by the New York Review of Books. Um, and it's phenomenal. The translation is great. Archipelago also um, has published, uh, I think it's Life and Bitters. And I'm hoping more of his work will be translated into English. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the... Th conspicuous absences in the grand tour of exile for zebra is she doesn't go to iran yeah and you haven't been back since you were young either i don't believe i haven't but did you ever were you ever tempted to uh imagine yourself there in the narrative or imagine zebra there in in the return yeah i mean that was the goal right she wants to reverse and retrace the path all the way and i don't want to give too much away but i think she of course, you know, realizes the impossibility of that and the fact that it's a, it's basically a suicidal project. And um, thankfully, it's the digression with Ludo that allows her to come to terms with that and and realizing that it's her desire to go back has m so much more to do with not knowing how to grieve the loss of her mother, right? And once she figures out how to grieve that, the absence of Iran is extraordinarily painful, um, but she's able to hold it. And yeah, I wish I could go back every day. You yeah. know, of course. Well, in your in your Twitter profile, you describe yourself as a transnational body. And recently, I've been preparing for an interview with Molly Crabapple about her upcoming memoir about the Syrian war, mm -hmm. and she tweeted the phrase "borders kill." Recently. And when I was thinking about the transnational body and both the arbitrariness and lethality of borders, it made me think of a past interview I had with Yonara Friedland. I don't know if you read her book, The, the Uncountry. No, I haven't. Um, her book, Uncountry, it feels like a kindred spirit to Call Me Zebra. Not, It doesn't read anything like it, tonally, syntactically. Um, it's a very different reading experience, but it raises questions of identity, identity and lineage in relationship to exile from place. Mm -hmm. and, and she took the title of her book from a quote by Alain Sitsu mm -hmm. that goes, I want the word uncountry. I am sorry we don't have it since uncountry is not supposed to exist. 
I like beings who belong to removal inhabitants of the uncountry, of the in-country, of the country hidden in the country, or lost in the country, of the other country, the country below, the country underneath. And then Fried Friedland herself says, in essence, the task the book proposes is to string and build connection to that and those beyond our immediate association of nation and citizenship, the identity markers we are born into, and to imagine lineages that live within us contradicting inherited narratives. I do think, however, that this must always happen after a confrontation and untangling of our more immediate bonds, or in other words, the reaching beyond ourselves begins at the center, slowly rippling out. Mm -hmm. I want to emphasize that this is not a territorial act, claiming all kinds of subjectivities as our own, but rather an encounter at the boundary of I and thou, in Buber's words. And this, this feels very akin to Zebra's attempt, mm -hmm. somehow to me, of finding home in a spatialized imagination in an uncountry whose inhabitants are also her ancestors and also the stories of, mm -hmm. of, of people, the stories that her ancestors loved and the stories that she loves, all sort of in this almost mythological space. I, I just yeah. wanted to hear your response to That's some of that. That's such a beautiful quote. Um, yeah, I'd love to read, read that book. I think it's actually articulated so concisely something that's so difficult to get at, which is, yeah, precisely this idea that it's in the encounter with the person next to you in a deep sort of examination of, of the historical knots that have informed every aspect of your relating to one another, that you're then able to, to go to, to kind of and transcend, I think, is a slightly problematic word, but to transcend the notion of national boundaries, right? That you can't skip over the interrogation of the sets of relationships that surround you in the countries that you've we've landed in, right? That there is no way for Zebra to understand what happened to her family or even between her and her father um, without fully deeply immersing herself in the relationship with Ludo and looking at the ways in which her trauma and her expectations get replayed in that relationship and therefore distort it, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, distort him and the ways in which the, the things that have informed his life in turn further distort hers, right? That there is a kind of deep acknowledging that needs to occur of even the stuff that we think we're not responsible for that our ancestors did or thought of or taught us, right? We are responsible for those things, right? Um, I, I, I think, you know, if we're talking about them, something like epigenetics, right, the way that trauma gets inherited or passed on across generations, then then we, it's in our bodies, right? We're interacting with one another with all of that. And mm. the more we can be aware of it, I think the more we can be in an uncountry, right? Yeah. In this other space. I mean, one of the things that felt like connected uncountry, Call Me Zebra, and, and, and some of your essays, like reading The Odyssey and South Bend, is this nostalgia for a home that doesn't exist and this mm -hmm. um, 
knowing that the home doesn't exist mm-hmm. at the same time. And it made me think of the epigram mm-hmm. to this book, mm-hmm. or the epigraph to this book. Would, would you read it? Yeah. So it's from the Diamond Sutra. However many beings there are, in whatever realms of being might exist, whether they are born from an egg or born from a womb, born from the water or born from the air, whether they have form or no form, whether they have perception or no perception, or neither perception or no perception, in whatever conceivable realm of being one might conceive of beings, in the realm of complete nirvana, I shall liberate them all. And though I thus liberate countless beings, not a single being is liberated. I love that, and I'm very disturbed by it at the same time. Yeah, I um, I actually encountered this quote in one of Amina Kane's short stories that oh. I love from her collection, Creature. Um, and it's called Attached to a Self, and, and the narrator is in a monastery and keeps struggling with this quote. And then, of course, I went and, and searched for it, and it's in the Diamond Sutra. But it was even, even this here is a kind of intertextual gesture that um, is kind of a secret, right? <laughs> Although I did tell Amina Kane about it. Well, if we think of the uncountry as a, a borderless place mm-hmm. where things can mingle across time and across lineages Mm -hmm. uh, in regards to your book. And also, when I think of the way you described Henry James and Lynn Tillman as linguistic Mm deterritorializers, I wondered if this sort of transnational, out-of-time or deep-time imaginative landscape is what informs some of the decisions you do when you teach. Like I was, Mm -hmm. I know that you teach medieval and contemporary literature in the same class. So mm-hmm. we're, you're not segregating. Like mm-hmm. in a sense, it feels like there's an interrogation of borders happening in the pedagogy. Yeah, absolutely. So I was telling you earlier, I, I teach this class called Walking, Writing, Thinking, and we will read uh, Robert Walzer and Cortázar and then read Basho, um, Petrarch, uh, Jan Lin Guo, um, and we do sort of all of this side by side, or we'll read Thoreau's walk, essay on walking alongside um, this beautiful graphic novel by Taniguchi called The Walking Man. And it's just fascinating to see the ways in which uh, these ideas around being embodied and having to care for for our own bodies and for the environments we live in, uh, sort of it's a philosophical thread that you can trace back um, to medieval um, philosophers and, you know, even further back to our sort of deep stories of migration, right? And um, I, I think that the... The ways in which we jump from text to text create an ethos in the classroom for thinking deeply about the self and um, sitting with ourselves still for long enough for all of our difficulties to come up. And at the same time, realizing that it's through that deep descent into the struggle that we can maybe access this kind of transcendent space of hope. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think, yeah, the literature reading it that way allows the students to grapple 
um, with the self as this moving, right, um, phenomenon or changing phenomenon. And it tends to be a really transformative class for the students and for myself as well. Yeah. So we'll read Teja Cole's Open City, and um, we were lucky enough to have him come to class this, this semester, and that was fantastic. I yeah. want to be in that class. Yeah, I wish <laughs> I could just sort of teach that class forever, and yeah. Well, I want to I wanna maybe push on learning more about the origins of your interest in, in walking and literature, because yeah. it's another way, weirdly, that it it connects you to Yanara Friedland, who... Um, she walked borders for months. So she, she walked borders in Europe for months as part of developing this book. And she's written a lot about the process of, of, of the uncountry and, and walking and that she actually is likes to write better when she's in the movement between places. So mm -hmm. she writes on trains or she writes when she's flying across oceans. Um, and you've said that in a way you walked this novel before you wrote it, mm -hmm. but what is it? about the walking part. And I wondered, I mean, you both are exploring exile and displacement. Is that, is that what you connect it to? Do you find home in the movement? I guess is the question really that I'm getting at. Cause it seems yeah. like she finds home in the movement. I think that's the only home I can find is, is sort of in, not in the movement, which is this kind of marrying of my body to space, right? It's a kind of meditation on the fact that, yeah, our bodies exist in space and time, and it's the the freedom of of walking and the rhythm of walking that I think Rebecca Solnit writes about this beautifully is is that the rhythm of walking is the rhythm of thinking, hmm. and that's the pace at which the mind works. And so when I'm walking, I can be deeply ruminative and also at some point become radically present. It, it is also, of course, connected to displacement. You know, when I think about even um, the Bible, the, uh, the story of the Exodus, right? Um, I also spent so much of my late teen and early 20s uh, backpacking and often didn't have a lot of money. And I would um, basically walk long, long distances between places just because I couldn't afford to get on the bus or mm -hmm. I couldn't afford the train ticket or the Euro pass. And it just became a habit, um, a kind of, I guess, spiritual practice for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I want to pivot to something that leapt out at me in this book is that not only is Zebra the first woman in, in, and at the same time the last heir to a very long lineage of all-male ancestors who are passing down a certain philosophical worldview. So she's the end of the line, and she's the first woman to inherit the line. Um, but almost without exception, the writers that Zebra returns to over and over again in the book are men. Mm -hmm. Some women writers get mentioned uh, in passing mostly. So Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, Virginia Woolf, but the ones that we ruminate over, or that Zebra ruminates over intensely, Nietzsche, Borges, Benjamin, Blanchot, Cervantes, are all men. And I, I wondered if that was by design, if, if mm -hmm. there was something that was happening. I have a theory, but I want to hear what yours is. Oh, what? I want to <laughs> hear your theory. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it's true. It's kind of this other side of, of um, these unacknowledged problematics of our intellectual discourse, right? I mean, she, 
she does she is aware that her father as progressive as he is is also um still you know sexist or dismissive toward the mother and as a result he takes over and co-ops her education completely even while the mother is alive and and her opinion doesn't ever um, count as much as his right so I was also talking about um, ways in which men can sometimes be incredibly progressive and yet still deeply sexist at the same time, that one thing doesn't necessarily free them of the other. Mm -hmm. um, and it isn't until, and Zebra's mother, you know, also has a responsibility in that dynamic in the sense that she doesn't push back very hard. And, and so, you know, it's also this dance that the parents do um, that implicates both of them in this kind of um, more patriarchal structure that Zebra grows up in. But as she un buries the grief of her mother, she also realizes that the mother had access to literature. And um, I don't want to give it away, but there is a great quote um, that she hears from the mother that's a citation um, of a woman writer. Uh, and that is one instant, but deeply transforms her consciousness. Hmm. Well, the, the reason why I thought it, it felt like it was by design was because Zebra doesn't just reference Cervantes' Don Quixote, but also Kathy Acker's Don mm -hmm. Quixote. Mm -hmm. um, and in Kathy Acker's Don Quixote, Don Quixote's a woman. Mm -hmm. And the second chapter is entitled, Being Dead, Don Quixote Could No Longer Speak. Being born into and part of a male world, she had no speech of her own. All she could do was read male texts, which weren't hers. Mm -hmm. And it, and the book goes on to appropriate material and rewrite it as a form of sabotage, I think, of the patrilineal lineage. And mm -hmm. I don't think that's what Zebra's doing, but necessarily. But this idea that you're born into th the canon and the language, none of the right. words of which you have created, mm -hmm. um, and having to use them as almost as weapons to create space. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when when I was studying literature in school, it was maybe 90% male, you know, and the work of figuring out who are the contemporary women writers, it's really, you have to do a lot of research in order to figure that out. Um, I don't feel that the male writers aren't my writers. I feel they are. I, you know, I have no trouble um, laying claim to that. But of course, there is a way in which a writer like Virginia Woolf or Sir Juana Inés de la Cruz speaks to me that kind of, I can, in the text, feel this, this the sort of struggle to create the space of what Virginia Woolf calls a room, room of, of one's own, right? And that it's almost as if the text is being whispered into my ear, right, as, as a kind of reinforcement of my determination to, to continue to be a writer in the world, right? Mm -hmm. um, but Zebra is also aware, I mean, of, of the patriarchy. I mean, she, she sort of is making fun of the, um, Homer's The Odyssey and Dante. She takes them so seriously, but of course she's also laughing at the idea that um, Don Quixote to all these three big epic texts of um, the hero's journey are done by men. And she's like, well, watch me. I'm going to do all three in one go. <laughs> and and then she she sits on her father's lazy boy. And and there is a joke in that that 
if you're not listening closely enough, you might miss, but she's laughing um, for sure. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Can, can we hear a little bit of the prose? Sure. So I'll read from the prologue. Great. Illiterates, abecedarians, elitists, rodents all, I will tell you this. I, zebra, born Bibi Abbas Abbas Hosseini, on a scorching August day in 1982, am a descendant of a long line of self-taught men who repeatedly abandoned their capital, Tehran, where blood has been washed with blood for a hundred years, to take refuge in Noshar, in the languid, damp regions of Mazandaran. There, hemmed in by the rugged green slopes of the Elbors Mountains and surrounded by ample fields of rice, cotton, and tea, my forebears pursued the life of the mind. There, too, I was born and lived the early part of my life. My father, Abbas Abbas Hosseini, multilingual translator of great and small works of literature, man with a thick mustache fashioned after Nietzsche's, was in charge of my education. He taught me Spanish, Italian, Catalan, Hebrew, Turkish, Arabic, English, Farsi, French, German. I was taught to know the languages of the oppressed and the oppressors because according to my father and to my father's father and to his father before that, the wheels of history are always turning and there is no knowing who will be run over next. I picked up languages the way some people pick up viruses. I was armed with literature. As a family, we possess a great deal of intelligence, a kind of super intellect. But we came into this world one after the other during the era when Nietzsche famously said that God is dead. We believe that death is the reason why we have always been so terribly shortchanged when it comes to luck. We are ill-fated, destined to wander in perpetual exile across a world hostile to our intelligence. In fact, Possessing an agile intellect with literary overtones has only served to worsen our fate, but it is what we know and have. We are convinced that ink runs through our veins instead of blood. We've been listening to Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi read from Call Me Zebra. So immediately when I started Call Me Zebra, I was really impressed with how different the experience was than reading your first book, Frock mm-hmm. Keeler, how radically different the voice is, the, the syntax and rhythm of the text. So Zebra is ruminative and obsessive, but in Frock Keeler, your first book, the sentences feel like they're ruminative and obsessive. And whereas Zebra has Ludo to challenge her sort of hermetic interiority, and Zebra's travels and pilgrimages also sort of counterbalance this interiority. And in Frock Keeler, we are forever stuck in a syntactical and narrative echo chamber. And you've talked about how you wanted to create a voice for Zebra that is both deadly serious and full of humor, mm-hmm. and that you read writers who embodied these two qualities. Mm-hmm. And I, you've mentioned Dali and Nietzsche's mm-hmm. too, but I just was curious about what writers informed Zebra's voice in 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 mm-hmm. what fashion? Yeah, I think Nietzsche is the, the sort of style stylist that I just absolutely adore. I mean, he is so funny, and I don't know that he knows he's funny. You know, in the same way that some people have asked me, does Zebra know she's funny? And I and I think, oh, I have no idea. You know, I don't uh, think she knows. I don't think she knows. I think you're right. And it's just that she takes things so seriously that they become absurd. But also her circumstances are so absurd. And um, 
to me, absurdity is kind of the grandfather of irony, right? It's, it's this kind of space where you're having to be in an existential conundrum all of the time because, because you've been pushed so far over the edge and that there's really very little left to do except laugh at the darkness in order to illuminate it and illuminate its magnitude, right? So Beckett knows this quite well. Um, so Nietzsche was a big one. Dali, who's so such a megalomaniac, right? Um, I absolutely, I, I love his work. And um, it, again, it's sort of, his paintings don't disturb me. I, I know they do for some people, but I actually, they make such sense to me. There's such mathematical order in his painting, such precision. And it's through the precision that he's able to be, be surreal. Um, but his writing is disturbing. It's really funny, full of banter, full of narcissism, unchecked, right? Um, Self-glorifying. And he talks about becoming more Dali. And I think that that's something Zebra learns from him, from this, what she called mm. the paranoid critical method of thinking and reasoning. And then um, I read a lot of Camus, a lot of Walter Benjamin, I, um, but I, had, I don't think of Camus having those qualities. No, no, not or at Benjamin, all. For no, that but uh, um, but the sort of literary theories that she's able to construct that aren't necessarily funny. They're um, those come from you know reading Camus and Benjamin and Blanchot and um, Barthes and Borges, right? But a lot of the kind of layering of introspection and and space and keeping track of interiority and exteriority and moving back and forth between them, for me, um, I think I learned to do that by reading a lot of Virginia Woolf. Mm. Um, you know, she sort of has these long meandering sentences where she'll move from di different levels of the psyche to something that's moving across in the the space and the environment and back in again. Yeah. No, another thing that made me wonder about the creation of voice. So if we think about this twinning of, of seriousness and humor, mm -hmm. it, particularly Nietzsche and Dolly, you also had this tweet. Um, I'm looking forward to talking about Primo Levi, Anna Kavan, and Borges in my workshop on literature as rebellion. We are going to talk about what it means to write honest sentences, embrace vulnerability, and explore the unknown. And what I wondered about that is what an honest sentence was. Mm -hmm. In your mind, what's an honest sentence to you? Like, and and yeah. in relationship to th this book, for instance. Yeah, it, it's a sentence you've written through <laughs> your sweat. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's so much talk about craft and how to out there in the world, and this obsession with writers giving advice to young writers and. I just, I feel so much resistance towards that because how can one person tell another person how to tell their story, right? Or what shape it needs to take in order for it to transform them. And that the writing on a sentence is for me, and I understand it's a tall order and that it's not, a, not everybody wants to be doing this kind of work, right? And that's fair. Um, for me, it's sort of my, my standard that I try to keep myself to is the process of writing the book has to somehow change me. I have to somehow grow into that writer's self that was 
ahead and then raise the bar again. So I always am lost in how to write the book. I never know. I never know what the next sentence is going to be. And sometimes it'll take so many drafts to get there. So we talked about writing honest sentences in that workshop, particularly as closing the gap between what we think we need to be writing and what actually needs to be said, which we can't access immediately or directly. It, it requires a lot of self-examination and fearlessness. And unfortunately, the world doesn't make a lot of space or room for that. And, and neither does the industry necessarily, right? It's always moving so quickly. Yeah. Um, and, you know, difficult work takes a long time because it requires so much of us on a personal level. Mm. Yeah. Well, you have this project you did with a writer you met at Brown, Hannah Morgenstern. Yes. That engages with many of some uh, many of the questions in Call Me Zebra, questions of exile, of refugees, of borders, and of narratives that both become homes, but also potentially become death traps that make one intolerant of others. Mm -hmm. Similar, in some respects, to that theme in, in Call Me Zebra. Of, mm -hmm. um, so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about the project you did with Hannah and and how and why it came about in yeah. the first place. Yeah, so um, we we met at Brown, and it was, a, uh, when was this, 2006 or so, and she was doing a PhD in comparative literature, and she's now a, um, a post-colonial professor at the University of Cambridge, and she's working on... Uh, literature um, from the 1948 period uh, in in Israel and Palestine, and in particular looking at literary and cultural collaborations that, um, you know, writers like Emil Habibi, um, Anton Shamas, were hoping would be a, a, a source of resistance to the violence we're seeing today, right? A kind of preventative measure. Um, of a kind of deep cultural and literary exchange. And um, it, we, I was lucky enough while I was at Brown that um, she became a very dear and close friend along with um, this other uh, woman, uh, Qada, who was a Palestinian writer um, at Brown um, doing uh, her MFA in fiction at the same time. And, and it was just a beautiful friendship that's ongoing um, between, you know, an Iranian uh, a Israeli woman who's Jewish and a Palestinian woman who's Muslim. And, um, you know, just the fact that we have this incredible friendship is a testament to exactly what we've been talking about, right? Um, this kind of ways in which we can cross borders that we've internalized, right, um, based on nationalist discourses. And so Hannah and I went to um, Israel and Palestine and uh, interviewed a lot of artists and writers who are, um, you know, talking um, about the occupation and hoping to create new discourses of relation and um, how that kind of work that she studies that was, was occurring in 1948 is actually ongoing. And a lot of um, people don't necessarily know that. I didn't know that until I went there. And also the ways in which the territory is policed and the kind of vertigo you experience when you um, go across the wall or wait in these, you know, sort of 
very difficult situations in order to cross over into um, Jerusalem from the West Bank. Can, can you speak to um, some of the projects that mm-hmm. you that you interviewed? I know it's interesting to me, to, like, for instance, some of the stuff that was going on in East Jerusalem, some of these Palestinians that were being evicted and then right. the, the protests, um, both artistic and, and actual protests uh, against the evictions, that these are really double exiles because mm-hmm. uh, a lot of the Palestinians in East Jerusalem were resettled in at the time of the formation of the state of Israel by the United Nations mm-hmm. in Jordan. Mm-hmm. And so they were resettled from their original homes. Exactly. And now they're being evicted, evicted a second time. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I would just be curious to hear about some of the, th- of the different artistic political mm-hmm. uh, uh, things that you were engaging with. Yeah, that was actually one of the first pieces we wrote is that we went to what was then a peaceful Friday protest that was held, um, I think it was during sort of the religious hour, and um, it was led by a kind of coalition of uh, very radical Israeli um, youth who really want to dismantle the occupation. And there was an open invitation for um, Palestinians to join. Um, and, and many did. But of course, it was, you know, you you when you looked into the crowd of protesters, you would see more uh, young Israelis than you would young Palestinians, because of course, the, the sort of um, peril that they would be in um, was was difficult to predict. And a lot of these young Israelis uh, would go into these homes and live with the Palestinian families in order to forbid the state um, from bulldozing the homes or coming in and dragging them out. So they were sort of, just by being present there, able to, to some degree, protect the Palestinian families. But of course, eventually, most of them were violently evicted and um, then lived in tents just across the street from the the homes that were immediately occupied. Mm. Um, another project was um, interviewing uh, this filmmaker who's um, French, Till Rosens- Rosenkens. I, I forget how to pronounce his name exactly. But he had spent a lot of time in Ida Camp. And Ida Camp has been there uh, since 48 and now is a city, right? There are multiple generations of kids who have been born and raised and become adults in this camp. And it's very, very painful because it's right next to a five-star hotel that diplomats travel in and out of. And he had done this memory project in Ida where he asked several generations of people to draw a map of Ida as a city and um, how it had been constructed over time and their memories of the landscapes they had left behind. It's it's a very beautiful film. Um, it's a documentary. Uh, and then I also interviewed Raji Batish, who lives in... Haifa, which is different as well, because there are Palestinians who did choose to stay. And of course, there is lots of um, complex issues among Palestinians, right, uh, depending on um, where they, they are settled. And of course, that's another tactic of, of sort of um, divide and conquer, right, um, that you see playing itself out on the ground. So it was a very, I learned 
I learned a lot and you know, it's such a complex issue. I still really, it's the tip of the iceberg, right? I yeah. don't know as much about it as I would like. But, I mean, it's yeah. interesting also the, the video mappings film yeah. that you mentioned. Yeah. Um, his grandmother was German, this, That's this right. French filmmaker. That's right. right. Thank you for reminding German, me. German, yes. non-Jewish. Yes. But she was so troubled by what happened to the Jews That's right. that she started visiting Israel. That's right. And she had all these connections because there were people in Israel who spoke uh, the same dialect of German as she did. That's right. And so she made friends with these German origin Jews in Israel as a sort of connection to her sense of trauma around what happened to them in Europe. That's right. And that brings her grandson to Israel, who's now filming the, the displacement of the mm -hmm. Palestinians in the camp. It's really fascinating. It is really fascinating and also not unique. And I encountered so many young Germans and German organizations who are doing nonprofit work, both in Israel and in Palestine. And a lot of, you know, this is what um, what's so wonderful about having a culture of memory like the Germans do, right? They fully feel accountable to the atrocities of the Holocaust. I mean, I think that's, uh, you know, discussed openly rather than something that's so dark and, and, and difficult that it's pushed under the rug. And that forces people to have to confront that and to have to um, be vigilant so that something like that doesn't happen again. Um, of course, you know, when, when people are doing social work or social justice work, the devil is in the details, right? There are also issues with it that I I can't um, discuss. I, I don't really know um, what the power dynamics might be within uh, these organizations or the ways in which um, they sort of distribute resources in, in the territories. Um, but I do think that it's incredible to, to see and witness so many Germans and German youth um, going there to kind of another way of dealing with the past, right? Another way of being accountable and physically putting themselves in those positions to experience the landscape and the displacement and making themselves mm. emotionally available to that, um, to those stories. Well, you mentioned the, the poet, Palestinian poet Raji Bath. Bathish. Bathish, yeah. I, I encountered one of his poems translated by your friend Hannah mm -hmm. um, Rooms. Would you mind reading it? Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like it, because it yeah. does feel like it um, echoes back against the Call Me Zebra. Mm. So, um, Rooms, translated from Arabic by uh, Hannah Morgenstern. I look in the mirror. Where is my exile? Where is exile? Is it here or is it there? inside of or within this loneliness spotted suitcase. I look in the mirror, and how can loneliness be in exile, and how can it be spotted? With black oil and turbid water, a loneliness whose beginning I do not know, nor do I know its disappearance. Maybe my strangeness will dissolve at the foot of this wall, whose thorns I am now regarding. One wall at the borders of my exile and another at the foot of my strangeness. I have arrived at a room which drips everything that has passed and it turns it into piles of dust, into a perfume of dust that does not end, from which nothing passes but the loss of memory. And that's by the Palestinian writer Raji Batish. 
that line, one wall at the borders of my exile and another at the foot of my strangeness is just incredible. incredible. Yeah. 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 Hannah Morgenstern is a, a, she's a beautiful translator. Um, She's also translated some of Emil Habibi's work. So I am always just uh, hoping that she'll uh, continue to translate and that somebody would be interested in in publishing these, these works because they're, they're really quite powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, to return to you and the high bar you set about uh, wanting to change when you do do a book, when you mm-hmm. write a book, uh, I know you have a couple manuscripts in progress, and I'm curious what this meditation on exile and, and place, on love and otherness, an experience that led you to say, maybe not all of our emotions belong to us and not all of our thoughts are our own. We've inherited these things we perform again and again, and landscape really shows that to us. I got to sit with that idea for a prolonged period with this book. So I'm, I'm curious what this prolonged period has prompted you to explore next. Yeah, I, it's freed me, I think, to write essays, which I wasn't able to do before, um, it has made the experience, my experience of, of exile more accessible to me and more immediate because I had to dig around for language I, that I didn't have before. And once I created the language for talking about the deep loneliness, the strangeness, the sense of futility, right? Um, and at times even a kind of a lack of conviction of you know, a sense of purpose or, or sort of what is it that we are living against and living through. Um, I think that having written this book, I'm now able to write about those things unapologetically, I suppose, Mm -hmm. because there's a way in which when you don't have language for these things, it creates so much shame and so much, uh, internal sort of atmospheric oppression that it, it's, it's disorienting within itself. So it's so, almost as if there's this deep turbulence within you all of the time. And I was able to go into the turbulence. I mean, it took seven years, and it, maybe that's not that long after all, but it feels long to me since I've only been around for 34. <laughs> so it's sort of, yeah, I, I w- I'm not afraid of it anymore. And is, is there as big a leap between uh, Call Me Zebra and your next book as oh, there yeah. was between Fakiler <laughs> and, and Call Me Zebra? Yes. Um, I don't know if you I, can... I, I, no, I can't talk about it you can't because talk it's about it. just... A, a... Can you do these gestures that no one else can see but me <laughs> in the room? I don't know what, I don't know if my hands are complicated enough. Um, yeah, I, I... No, the book will be, will be very different. Of course it's coming from me. So there's always going to be, um, a kind of exploration of, of the limits of our, um, of ourselves and in relation to, to sort of encounters with our mortality, I guess that's something that I think is going to be sort of in a a sort of long-term question for me, you know? Um, but yeah, I, I shouldn't say more also because as I began writing, call me zebra, I didn't know more. I'm in that position again. I don't know. I can only feel this kind of mood and this little, little tiny heartbeat. And that's all I know. 
<laughs> well, thanks for being on the show today, Azarine. Thank you so much for your uh, very thoughtful questions and, and um, the conversation. I appreciate it. We're talking today to Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi about her latest book, Call Me Zebra. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the studios of KBOO, volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength community radio from Portland, Oregon, found at kboo.fm. More of Azarine Vanderfleet Alumi's work can be found at azarinevanderfleetalumi.com, where you'll find more writings by her, her work in Israel and Palestine, as well as her literary pilgrimages in Catalonia. You can also go to patreon.com slash between the covers where we will be adding her reading of her essay, Reading the Odyssey Far From Home, why Homer's poem taught me about making a life on the Great Lakes. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating this outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatit Ami, can be found at iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning.